Thank you, Robert. Hi, everyone. My name is Carol. Hi, Carol. And I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Um, before I start, I have to warn this gentleman. I'm probably going to slug him because I talk with my hands. Um, <laughs> So be ready. Uh, Lord had a resentment against Alan on already. You really ever know. Oh, yeah. I am really, really thrilled to be here. Um, I didn't think I was going to make it, and um, I'm going to explain this to you. I wasn't going to, but I said, you know, I better tell him in case I leave the stage quickly. Um, since February, I have been in and out of the hospital twice and uh, have been told that I have asthma. And um, Now, I had asthma 30 years ago, and then it seemed to go away, and it came back, and they tell me I told me before I had asthma, and I said, no, I don't. Um, two trips to the hospital up until four weeks ago, I could only have enough breath to get from the bed to the bathroom to the couch and back and forth. But through the good graces of a new doctor, I'm on my feet and starting to move again. However, the medicine I'm taking sometimes upsets my stomach, and that's where I am tonight. Now, I'm saying, Lord, you didn't bring me this far <laughs> to get sick on all these people. <laughs> so if you'll just hold your breath with me, maybe we'll get through this. I, I am very grateful to be here, and I'm very grateful for Al-Anon. I'm supposed to tell you what it was like and what happened and what it's like today. So we'll see how far I get with this. I was raised in a family that was full of love and full of fun and sometimes full of anger. My father drank and he was a funny drunk. My brother and I just loved it when he came home on Thursday night. That was pay night. And he did uh, imitations of Frankie Fontaine, and he would pull that hat over his head, and he would make that Fontaine face, and he would say, the sweepstake ticket. And he would do everything he could and give my brother anything we wanted, and he would get all the cooking utensils out and cook for us. And we had a wonderful time. Now, to this day, I can't tell you, or I would not say that my father was an alcoholic. Uh, we didn't think his life was unmanageable at all. We thought he was a joy. But I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that my mother needed Al-Anon. <laughs> I had fun teenage years. I really had more fun than... Uh, I probably should have. I got out of high school, but um, through God's grace. I like to dance and I like to be in bars because in those days that's where the bands were and the live music and that's where you could jitterbug and have a good time. And of course that's where I met the man that I was to marry. Um, when I met Jack, when he had a few drinks in him, he was a marvelous dancer. And he told the funniest jokes of anybody there. And, and I watched him, and I laughed, and I enjoyed him, and he was everything that I thought I wanted in a man. Now, I was only 19 years old. I really didn't know what I wanted in a man. But I, I thought this was okay. And uh, we got married at 19 and proceeded to live a very adult life with two very immature minds. <laughs> Now, I knew he drank, but as I told you, I wasn't afraid of alcoholism because my father was funny. But this man wasn't as funny as my father. He didn't just get drunk on pay night. Um, he got drunk several nights. And I didn't understand alcoholism and because I, I never heard the word. And I didn't know what was happening. So when he went out and drank, I thought it was something that I was doing. Um, we soon bought our own house and we had our first child and we were starting on the All-American family. You know, I wanted to be the perfect wife so that he wouldn't drink. And I used what I saw on TV as a role model. Um, I also used Mrs. Miniver. If you laugh, you're going to date yourself. <laughs> And I made sure that Jack never saw me unless my hair was just so and my makeup was on and I had a clean apron on. And if I went out with Susan during the day, I was home every day by 3 o'clock to have all of this 
perfect. And in order for us to to survive, he had to work two jobs. So I laid his clothes out. I had a Tom Collins in my hand. I filled the tub for him. And he walked in, and I gave him his drink. He took his bath. He got dressed. He went out, and he didn't come back. (laughs) And I couldn't figure out why. I said, it must be something that I'm doing. Um, as, as alcoholism progressed in our, in our lives, my reaching out to get him progressed. I, uh, I did things like call the bars to prove that he was there, and I used to get so angry when they'd say he's not there. I spent money because if I could get him in debt, he couldn't afford to drink. Someone told me to do that. <laughs> Someone told me to do that. I did, I did so many things to get his attention, and it wasn't until I came into Al-Anon that I realized I was actually trying to get his attention. What I was saying all those years was, Jack, love me and not the bottle. My husband told me he never drank more than two drinks, and he never spent more than 50 cents. And, and I was amazed at that. I was amazed at that, because he come home so drunk. And I I didn't understand this. Now, I will talk about his story because I didn't get here because he ate ice cream. (laughs) I got here because he used alcoholism to an excess, and my reaction to his use of alcohol disrupted our family a great deal. And I have to tell you, my reaction to his drinking probably disrupted the family more than his drinking but I didn't know any other way. You see, I watched my mother deal with my father, and she really got mad, and she got control if she got mad enough. And my father did what she said the next day. So I used what she did to try to get control in my home. I have to tell you that sometimes I like those days the next day. You could get the room painted if they were really guilty. You could buy whatever you want. They tell, He would say, oh, I don't care, just don't bother me. What he was saying is, just don't bitch at me because I was drinking, you know. And when I started to realize that I could manipulate him the next day, sometimes I instigated arguments so he would go out to drink so I could remodel the living room. (laughs) And, And it worked. It worked. But then there were times that I didn't want him to do that, and I was heartbroken. Heartbroken at the the promises that were broken and broken and broken. I was heartbroken at the violence that started to take place in our home. I was heartbroken at the the cursing and the swearing that my children, and we we started to have more children. (coughs) I remember having, um, being pregnant for my son John, and I, I called the bar this night, and they said he wasn't there, and I was so angry. And I said, well, tell him I'm in labor. And he come charging through the front door, and I said, I knew you were there. <laughs> I knew it. You see, I had to prove I was right, because he was always telling me I was wrong, and because he drank, I believed him. If I wasn't so wrong, he wouldn't have to drink so much, and I just didn't know. I was getting all confused. And this happy-go-lucky young woman stopped laughing and cried an awful lot, cried an awful lot. I used to go home to my parents, and my father was very consoling, and he he mentioned the word alcoholic. Um, My mother mentioned words that I can't tell you because they're not spiritual at all. Um, I stopped going to my parents because they wanted me to leave him, and I didn't want to leave him. I went to, to priests and ministers, but I really didn't want them to know what was going on in my house because my actions weren't the, those of a Christian woman. They weren't what I was raised to be. You know, my husband would come in late for dinner and demand his supper, and he got it immediately. But I never took it out of the can. I would just fling it. <laughs> it would go through the picture window. And I would have all these children sitting around crying because the picture window was broken again, you know. I went to doctors, and they told me that I was a nervous wreck, that I needed tranquilizers. And I said, I'm the one home taking care of the family. He's a nervous wreck. He's out drinking. But I took the tranquilizers, and I snuck them in his coffee. (laughs) 
if I could get him come, he'll come home and not drink. Well, I had the most serene drunk you ever saw. <laughs> nothing bothered this man. My mouth, oh, nothing bothered him. So that didn't work. I went to lawyers. My dad would take me to lawyers because he really wanted me to leave. And when it got to the point where I had to actually take action, I'd say, but I don't want to leave. Nobody showed me how to stay. Everybody said leave. And then my father said, there's nothing more I can do for you, Carol. I got to let go of this because I'm getting sick over this. And that's how it was. I remember I went out one night and I, I, I always tried to get Jack because I thought he was having fun and I'm not so sure he didn't have a little fun. <laughs> and I was stuck home with those kids. And I loved my children, but I felt trapped. And this one night he came in with his friends and they liked to play cards and I never minded that because at least he was home. But I said, Jack, I'm, I'm going out. See, he went out the night before and he spent money and again, he only spent 50 cents. And he was loaded. So I said, while you're playing cards, why don't I run out and get the pizza for you and your friends? And he said, okay. So I went to uh, his favorite bar. And I sat at the bar and I put a quarter on the bar and Sal came over and he said, what do you want, Carol? And I said, I uh, came here to get drunk. And he looked at the quarter and I said, now look at Sal, Jack got drunk here last night for 50 cents. I only drink half as much and I ain't leaving till I'm drunk. Well, all the men in the bar thought I was very funny. And they started buying me drinks, you know, and the jukebox is playing, and I'm having the time of my life. The phone rings, and it's Jack. And he says to Sal, is Carol, home, or Carol there? And Sal covers up the phone. Are you here? No. And Sal said, no, nope, she's not here. Two o'clock in the morning, Jack called, last call, and he said, Sal, tell her I'm in labor. My, my, my best, my best. <laughs> I found out my husband was allergic to Clorox. So I used to rinse his underwear in it. I wanted to get his attention. I wanted him to feel pain of some kind. I really guess I wanted revenge. And I got it. Now this man would come in from work and he'd be walking kind of funny and he'd say, oh, Cal, I don't know what's wrong. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it wasn't until we were in the program and we spoke at a convention like this and I confessed this over the mic that he almost fell off the stage. You know, the truth makes you free and it drives somebody else into shock. If you're new, it won't stop them from drinking. <laughs> but it does give you a lot of satisfaction. <laughs> One of the rules is don't smile. <laughs> you know, when I did my steps and I had to make amends, I said to my sponsor, I'll never make amends for that one. And she said, oh, you're dealing with God. I said, my God has a sense of humor. And I know when I did that, he said, yes, Carol. <laughs> One Sunday night, I was watching television, and there was a panel on about alcoholism. And Lillian Broth was on that particular panel, and I know Alcoholics Anonymous was very upset with her at that time because she broke her anonymity. But I'll be forever grateful to her and the rest of those that were on that panel. Because they spoke about alcoholism and the disease. They told about Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery. They shared about blackouts. They gave me hope for the first time in my life because they explained what was happening in my home.
It had nothing to do with maturity or immaturity or boy, girl, or any of these things. It had no curse words behind it. It had the, the definition, it's a disease. And I just couldn't wait for Jack to come home because for the first time I had hope. And he slowly opened the door because he never knew what I was going to throw. <laughs> and I said, it's okay, Jack, come on in. We're not going to have a fight. <laughs> he said, we're not. And I said, no, you're not a drunk. He said, what am I? <laughs> you're an alcoholic. <laughs> well, we had the worst fight. <laughs> didn't tell me that alcoholics don't want to be alcoholic. And I didn't understand that. I couldn't wait till the next morning to tell my neighbors, I'm married to an alcoholic. I, I thought that word had such dignity. I mean, I was, I was married to the neighborhood drunk. Now, that isn't a nice word. But alcoholic to me had hope. And I was just thrilled. And he was just angry. <laughs> and said, don't ever call me that again. I'm a drunk and that's it. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, I was one confused lady. But I didn't fight and I didn't argue and I, I didn't get into a lot of things for the next few months. I watched him and I saw the disease of alcoholism. I really did. I, I, I could actually see the alcohol coming out of his pores. You could feel it. You could smell it. I could hear words to it, like he would be mumbling to himself. I don't know why I didn't come home again last night. I just stopped for one drink. I saw his eyes when the phone rang and the fear that he had in his face. I saw him morning after morning look to see if his car was there. I saw active alcoholism and I started to understand. But what I also understood that I was an emotional volcano that didn't know how to deal with this, didn't know that there was AA around or any of those things, and wasn't sure how to proceed. And I said to him, you've got to go to AA or I have to go to a lawyer. You see, I am emotionally ready to explode. And when we explode, it's violent. And when we have violent fights, our children are older now, they get into it. And even though we've hurt them emotionally, we have had yet to hurt them physically and I had great fear that that's what would take place and he said I will never go to Alcoholics Anonymous so you go to your lawyer I didn't do that and through a series of events he did surrender and we came to Alcoholics Anonymous on a Wednesday night called AA but I got someone's mother-in-law and she told me what to do so I drove him to the first AA meeting and it was a hot night in August and we got to the door of Alcoholics Anonymous and he stopped and he said I'm not going through with this and I said that's what you think and I physically shoved him through the doors of AA and as he flew through the doors thank God there was a greeter there who caught him he said help me and he surrendered his life like that. He fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. He went to meetings seven nights a week and twice on Sunday. I said that night, sober him up and give him back to me and I'll do anything. And what I was actually saying that night is give him back to me because I know what I want in a husband and a father. I've watched the neighbors and I know what fathers are supposed to do. They're supposed to come home and play with their children. I watch the soap operas and I know what husbands are supposed to do. This was before they're doing what they shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Way back. But that's not the way it worked, and there was no Al-Anon in the Hudson Valley at that time. There was no one for me to talk to. And, and he went to meetings, and he stopped drinking the first step. He admitted he was powerless over alcohol. He stopped drinking. He went to meetings. But he didn't do the other 11. There was no attitude change. There was no change in our home. There was still fighting. And I had no program, so I fought, he fought. We talked to each other through clenched teeth and fists on the table. And we'd be discussing a bill, or the kids, and the phone would ring, and he'd answer it, and it would be AA, and he'd say, Hello. <laughs> I'd run up on the extension and I'd say, if you think he's serene, you're as sick as he is. <laughs> 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 
got this person called a sponsor. And every Saturday morning we had a fight over something and he'd get up and walk out and come back with a sponsor. And his sponsor would stand there and say, Now, Carol, sobriety comes first and God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. How about making a pot of coffee? And I did. And I'd cry. And I'd talk to Norris. And I'd get some help. And this went on. And finally Jack got what they call a pigeon in his life. I guess you call them babies or something, but a newcomer. Now this newcomer's wife wouldn't put up with him. She moved out, so I ended up with him every Saturday morning. <laughs> and when we had the fight, Jack would go out, the three of them would come back. <laughs> Sobriety comes first, and you'll get no more than you can handle. And now we must easy, does it, Carol? My God, if we go much slower, we were not doing anything. <laughs> Isn't there such a thing as easy, does it, but do it? <laughs> I'd go to meetings and there was no Al-Anon, there was no program there and there were women who were married to alcoholics but they were attending meetings but, and I'm not taking their inventory but they weren't into a program for themselves but I, I had to talk to somebody and I, I'd say, oh could I talk to you? I, I'm, I'm so upset because I feel so alone. I, I jacks out every night. I have nobody to talk to. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. And she'd say, well you have no gratitude in your attitude. Oh, I was grateful he was sober. I was grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. I just wanted a husband to hold me. I just wanted somebody to listen to me. And you know, here was this strong woman who kept the family together, paid the bills, did the children, did everything, and he's sober and he's sick, and now I'm crazy, and I don't know how I got crazy and he got sick. And he was the one that was bad and I was good and everything was all mixed up in my mind and I had nobody to help me straighten it all out and I just didn't know what to do. And I want to tell you that finally I asked them one night, please stay home and hold me and talk to me. You see, after those women said that to me, I would go home at night and cry my heart out on that pillow at night because I was full of guilt now. Here you've got a sober husband and you're still complaining. What's wrong with you? What is it all about? So one night I said, please stay home, please stay home, I've got to talk to you. And he said, I can't, you have got to understand, I am not knocking Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am not knocking his actions. He needed to do this for his recovery, and thank God he did, because I believe the man is sober today. But there was no programmer, Alan, on there for me, and nobody understood that I had been deeply affected, nor did I understand that. I just was a mess. And this night that he said, I'm sorry, I can't, I've got to go to my meetings, we'll talk later. He went in and took a shower and I went and I ripped up all his shirts so he couldn't go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. <laughs> but you see, he had been here for a few months and you taught him to prepare. <laughs> I ripped his shirts up before. I mean, the second step I had no problem with to keep him from going to bars. So he knew the state I was in and he took a shower, a shirt into the bathroom with him. Came out fully dressed and he picked up the ripped shirts and he said, I now have evidence. I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous and ask them to help me put you away. <laughs> this was one frightened lady. And I found out in my inventory when I'm frightened I come out fighting so I went downstairs I first I told my children to go to bed and if you hear any little noise tonight don't pay any attention to it just stay in your rooms <laughs> of course they knew then there was going to be trouble I went down I got myself a two by four and I sat in the living room and I said okay Alcoholics Anonymous you just try it <laughs> and I waited and I waited and thank God they didn't come <laughs> He came in very quietly that night and then the next morning the sponsor and the pigeon came and they sat and they talked to me, the three of them, and they said, we've learned about this thing called Al-Anon. Will you go? And I said, yes. 
And that Sunday, they took me 60 miles from our home to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I always say Alcoholics Anonymous in the Hudson Valley had to admit they were powerless over the actions of Carol Cooney. (laughs) And any attempt to straighten her out made their programs and lives unmanageable. (laughs) So in order for them to get on with the business of the day, they escorted me to my first Al-Anon meeting. The door opened, I stopped, and the three of them gently pushed me through the doors of Al-Anon. I went to my first meeting and they said, you're a newcomer, and I said, yes. And they said, do you have a problem? And I said, no. (laughs) No. I have one, but he's in AA and he's doing fine. And they said, today's meeting's on patience. And I raised my hand and I said, that's it. I have no patience. I knew how to handle a drunk. I knew how to manipulate a drunk. But I don't know how to deal with sobriety. I just don't know how to live with it. I don't know where I fit in. I know sobriety comes first, but where do I fit in in all of this? I don't know. And they proceeded to take my inventory, this group. They were one tough Al-Anon group. And I am so grateful because I was given so much sympathy by my mom and the neighbors. Oh, you poor soul. That when I wanted to feel sorry for myself, I could pull the whole development in. But these women didn't do that. They said, you have a martyr complex. Wow. You also have a mother complex. You are on your husband's back, and it's time you get off it. Let him work your program, and you work yours. We have a program to offer you. Here's a big, uh, hard-covered book. It's called Al Non Family Groups. We'll give you this book. We won't read it to you. If you want to learn anything about Al Non, you've got to read it yourself. Here's a meeting list. We hope you'll join us. If you need a ride, we'll come pick you up, but we won't call and ask you if you need a ride. Here's a telephone list. We're all here. All you have to do is pick up that phone and call. We won't call you. This is a program you have to want for yourself, and we'll walk it with you. We will not do it for you. And I walked out of the meeting that day, and I was so excited, and the three AAs stood there, and they said, well, I said, I've got my program, and you've got yours. I lost track of that book and I really didn't know where it went because I studied it and studied it and studied it. But a couple of weeks ago, the Fishgill Alanine group had their 32nd anniversary and one of the members came over and said, do you think it would be all right if I read this opening out of this book? It's very old. And she said, it's dated 1965. And I looked at it and it was the, first, the book that that group had given me that started me on my program and when I started that group I must have given it to the group and it got to the bottom of the box which they found it they didn't offer to give it back to me so I guess I have to leave it where it is but uh, Al-Anon has been good to me I got involved with service right away Um, not because of recovery because I didn't understand that in the beginning I got involved with service right away because people said thank you, because people didn't judge me, and because people smiled at me, and they didn't tell me I did it wrong. And I went on and on and on with my program. And I got involved um, with Alateine through God's grace. I got a phone call from the World Service Office because I had done a lot of talking with my husband and a couple of my children. So they knew that we were active members of AA Al-Anon and Alateen, and they asked if I would like to serve as the Alateen chairman, and I said yes. And I learned a lot by being involved with Alateen. If you missed the Alateen meeting this morning, you missed it. I have to tell you, the Alateen members that you have out here are sensational. I have gone to hundreds and hundreds of Alateen meetings and I have never heard every one of those children got up today and they gave program. And I was just amazed. 
I also want to congratulate those of you that came because I sat in the back of the room and I said, I hope this room fills up because I've been to so many where the room doesn't fill up. We go to AA and we go to Al-Anon and kind of forget who we really hurt, the children. But the room filled up and it was, it was a spiritual experience for me and I think for everyone in that room. I just think you ought to all be very proud. And I'd like to give the Alateens a hand because I don't think... Through my sponsoring of Alateen, I was then asked to come to work at the World Service Office as the Alateen Administrator. And then soon I was asked to coordinate international conventions. Now my home is, uh, it was a two hour ride, one way to get to work uh, between car and train. So I was gone a good 13, 14 hours a day. And due to another illness, that's why I had to go to work. My husband was stricken with arthritis and we became disabled. So I went from a household woman to a career woman. And then I was given the international convention. Uh, my first one to co-coordinate was in New Orleans and then went on to Montreal. And then we went on to Seattle, Marianne Keller and myself. And got very busy, and my husband, with his 20 years of sobriety, was very busy in his program, and I was busy in my job. And when you do an international, you leave home frequently. And you know, you can get busy, and maybe you don't know, but I know you can get busy, and you can tap them, you can hug them, you can kiss them, say good luck to what you're doing, good luck to what you're doing, and you're busy. And I, I came home from the uh, planning of one week that I was out in Seattle and on the on the way home I realized that I hadn't stopped for a long time and just said I love you and I couldn't wait to get home to see my husband and to see my kids and I was full I was tired but I was full of gratitude we got off the plane Jack was there and we said our goodbyes to Marianne and got in the car and he went to start it and I said don't start that car Jack I have to tell you how much I appreciate you and I want to thank you for the support that you gave me in my program and in my job and I just love you and I just want you to hold me and let me tell you this. Well, he took me in his arms but they weren't arms that were receiving me. They were just stiff. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I thought there's definitely something wrong. And he said, I'm fighting a drink. Fighting a drink after 20 years in this program. I mean, you, you have such wonderful sobriety. Our children are all doing what we want them to do. The bills are paid. Uh, I don't understand this. You and your son are starting to build a relationship. Our son was five years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. What more could you want? I'm almost ready to retire. We're going to travel the country. We're, we have it all. Why would you want to pick up a drink? I don't know. I don't know. And that was the beginning of two and a half years of what I call a merry-go-round of denial and deceit. And I worked every single thing that this program told me to do. I detached with love. I minded my own business. I, I, I worked my own program. I admitted when I was wrong, and I went on and on and on. One day I came home from work, and after, after many, many sessions, and there was some furniture missing, and there was a note, and my husband made a decision to move on with his life without me. And we were married 37 years, and I didn't know what to do. I was devastated. I went from my mother to my husband, and here I was. I remember when I, when I read that note, it was like somebody punched me in the stomach, and I honestly thought I was going to lose my mind. I called my Al-Anon friends, and they really came and took over and, and helped me. I called my children. One of the most grateful things I think I has come out of this is you know when you're in the program a long time you talk a lot of words at meetings many many years and you share with people what you would do and even what you think they would do sometimes and no one ever said you've been in the program for almost 30 years you ought to know what to do they responded to my need with program 
and I was forever grateful. Today I do the first step. I admit I'm powerless over choices other people make. And any obsessive thoughts that I may have on why they do these things makes my life unmanageable and keeps me from being the person my God created me to be. Unfortunately, my son didn't turn to his program. He chose to walk away from Alcoholics Anonymous and he's actively drinking today. That, again, is his choice. I was working on the international convention and I I know what I call mine a whiteout. I know how you can function and not know that you did all of this stuff. And it, it's absolutely marvelous. I worked one time and I was uh, at the office. We were having a late meeting, so I was to stay at a hotel. And I was so emotionally upset, I left at noontime to check in. And the hotel said, we don't have a room right now. You'll just have to wait. And I said, you don't understand. I am emotionally, mentally, and physically sick, and I am about to explode in all directions in your lobby. They escorted me immediately up to this big suite. And they left me there. And I looked around. I really didn't want a suite. I wanted a closet. And I fell on my knees and I said, Oh, my God, my God. If this be your will for me, then you must give me the will and the strength to walk it through because on my own, I can't make it. And with that, a strength came through me and I was able to get up. And that was the beginning of my walking forward. But in order for me to walk forward, I had to take a lot of steps. I had to admit that I was powerless over this. I had to come to believe that a power greater than myself will restore and maintain my sanity. You see, that power for me is the the power of the fellowship within my Al-Anon group and my AA friends. I can go to my group and I can say to them, I am in such pain I can't walk in that house at 6 o'clock at night because, you see, the worst noise in the world is no noise. And I just don't know what to do. And then that group, every one of them called. And when I came at 6 o'clock, my message box was blinking. And I would turn that on and I would have somebody's voice talking to me. And I have one friend, Dottie, who does not leave spiritual messages. And my grandson happened to get a hold of my message box (laughs) ahead of me. And uh, I walked in that night and he said, Nan, who are you hanging around with? (laughs) My son took me for a ride one day and he said, Mom, you wouldn't hurt yourself. You wouldn't do anything. And I said, you think I'm going to kill myself? And he said, yeah. And I said, I wouldn't do that. That would be transferring my pain to you and your sisters. I, I mean, I wouldn't think of that. But you know, there was a Sunday afternoon that I was in that house by myself. And I was in a big old lounge chair with a quilt over me and it had snowed and it was a very gray wintry day. And my spirit and soul were as gray as my surroundings. And I cried to my Lord and I said, oh my Lord, my Lord, if I could just go to sleep because I don't know, even with your help, if I can go on. There's nothing to live for. There's no joy, happy, joyous, and free. I wasn't happy, I wasn't joyous, and because I was holding on, I wasn't free. And as the tears came down my eyes and I felt so alone and so desperate, a cardinal appeared right at at my door. I had sliding doors. And I started to cry. You see, my God was saying to me, there is beauty in the world. There is something to live for. You just have to get take action, Carol, and move forward and get going with this thing. I had to tell my children and my daughters, I really want to live. I really want to get on with this. I had to tell them that I don't know if I can get to the train and they would drive me to the train. I had to tell them that maybe one night one of you could sleep with me because it's so lonely. And they did that for me. And this only took a few months and I started to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And one Sunday afternoon, I was sitting on the bed. I cried a lot, but I believe in tears because I think tears wash the soul and wash the negative out of your insides, and that makes room for the positive. But I was crying again this Sunday afternoon, and I was flipping through the paper, and I said, oh, God, will I ever feel joy again? You see, I loved sharing my life with my husband. I loved getting off that train at night and telling him, 
all of the things that happened to the day. So to get off the train and have no one there was devastating. And I said, What's the, where's the joy in my life? And as I'm flipping, 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 this, this word magnified through my tears and it said clown. Oh my Lord, my Lord. I can't be a clown. What a funny God you are. <laughs> you know, I have some daughters that really get upset with my actions when I don't dress up. <laughs> and I, I kept sitting there and it magnified. It wouldn't leave my head clowning, clowning, clowning. <laughs> I am a professional clown. My name is Petal. I have gone to school, college, and I clowned for some time. And it truly brought joy back into my life. Due to my illnesses, I have not been able to clown this past year. But when I clowned, I went to places where there was a lot of pain. I went to crisis centers where children started to smile when I walked in. I went to senior citizen centers. I went to soup kitchens. And I saw people smile. I went on a July night into a senior's uh, complex, and they were sitting on benches, many of them deserted by their families or abandoned because they're just too busy. And when they saw this clown coming over the horizon, they started to clap and laugh, and they said, look at that, look at that. And I do balloon sculptures, and one said, I want a red one, I want a red one. Now, my mother lived in this complex, but she was hiding behind the curtain, <laughs> saying, oh, my God, don't let her tell them who. And I say, that's my mother. <laughs> My oldest daughter, she accepts anything I do. She just thinks it's wonderful. And my son, his drinking, thinks I'm wonderful and do what you got to do, Mom. I don't know how wonderful he thought it was when I appeared at his favorite bar. In <laughs> my big shoes and my big skirt and my big wig and my nose. And I just walked in and I opened the door and I went, Hi! And he turned around and he said to everybody, that's my mom. <laughs> my younger two daughters gave me very definite boundaries. One is a chiropractor. You are not to come near my place of business. <laughs> and the other one said, and you are not to come in my neighborhood. And every boundary they gave me, I broke. Now, I didn't go in her office, but I did pull in the parking lot, beep the horn and wave, and take off. When I got home, she called and said, get yourself another chiropractor. <laughs> but you know, her eight-year-old daughter clowns with me. And, and it, is, it is a joy to see because some of these children, especially young children in wheelchairs or children that have been, been physically abused, they're kind of scared of clowns, you know, and I'm a big lady, and you put that makeup on and everything, and that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. But this little eight-year-old reaches them, reaches them. She can touch them. She can smile at them. My Carol, the youngest one, she has a little one that's three, and when she was about a year and a half old, she said to Karen, how do you get Mom to take Devin all day long? She said, let her put a wig on the kid and a nose, and she's gone. <laughs> My oldest daughter, who was deeply affected by the actions of her parents, has overcome many, many obstacles through the application of this program. She's now in college, an A student, and she's just been given a um, $1,000 scholarship, which was quite an accomplishment. My son is still actively drinking, but calls me, and I know that he loves his mom, and his mom loves him, and we communicate well. He knows where he should be. But, you know, he told me he didn't want me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Stay away from those AAs. And I said, I can't, John. They're a part of me. You've got to do what you got to do, and I've got to do what i got to do. But you know, the day I have to tell you this story before I finish up here, the day I got my separation papers, 
I was so frightened because after I had done my inventory, it all boiled down to I had a tremendous fear of being abandoned. Now, I don't know why. My parents were very loving, but I had this fear. And here I was facing my greatest fear. And when the papers came, my fear surfaced, and I was talking to my son, and I said, oh, these papers came, and I don't know what to do, and I, I'm just overwhelmed, and I'm just, I'm just so upset. He said, don't leave the house. And it was on a Saturday evening, and I hung up, and he called his sister, and he said, I think Mom's about to go nuts. So they all got ready, and they called back, and I was gone. I headed for the Saturday night AA meeting because I was going in there, and I was going to tell them what was really happening in my home. I was going to bring, bring honesty to the surface. And God help anyone that got in my way because I was going to beat the hell out of every AA member in there if they stopped me. And I was driving my car and the tears were coming down and I'm praying, I'm saying, oh my God, let me do this with dignity. <laughs> I was about two miles from that meeting in a red light and I was waiting and the God, I believe, spoke to me and said, you know, Carol, if you turn right, you're at an Al-Anon meeting. And I turned right, and I went into the Al-Anon meeting, and they could tell by looking at me that I was in, in serious trouble. And I told them what I was about to do, and nobody said, don't do it. They said, are you going to join us for the meeting first? <laughs> and I said, yes, and the leader of that meeting quickly switched it to anger. <laughs> They talked about anger, and when the meeting was over, they still didn't tell me not to do it. They said, are you going to AA or coming to the diner with us? And I said, I'll go to the diner. But I want to show you how God answers your prayers. One year later, that group invited me to speak at their anniversary. I went and I spoke, and there was a young man in that audience that was a friend of my son's. But of course, my son was not there. And the next day, he called John, and he said, I met your mother last night. And John said, where? <laughs> the AA anniversary, she spoke, and he said, oh. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that your mother is a woman of dignity. The exact word that I asked for. And John called to tell me that, and I was forever grateful. I know God answers prayers, and you know, when I get to the 11th step and seek through prayer and meditation to have a conscious contact with my God, asking for knowledge of his will for me and the power and the courage to carry that out, that says to me it's not going to be what I want all the time. And I was sitting there one night with my Alman friend saying, I want it now. And this fellow said, you know, you're like old Marmaduke, that big old floppy dog. I said, excuse me. <laughs> well, he said, you know, Marmaduke is home and the master's coming in and master knows what Marmaduke needs. But Marmaduke is so impatient, he's jumping all over the master and the master's trying to get him food and he's trying to let him out and he's trying to get him water. But because of Marmaduke's impatience, the master can't take care of Marmaduke's needs. And that has helped me so lately. You know, when I get out of control, I see me as Marmaduke <laughs> jumping all over my Lord saying, now, now, now. You know, I need visuals. I need visuals. They work for me. When I took my four-step inventory, I had a mom who I tried always to please. And in taking that inventory, I found out that my mom was a china cup. She's a wonderful lady. She, she just made sure that she dressed perfect and the, the holidays and tradition and she played bridge and, and she behaved so well. And then she had this daughter who preferred to play poker and, and just hang out here and there. And I mean, it must have been a little bit of a disappointment. <laughs> but it's okay. See, in my inventory, I found out I'm a mug. <laughs> And a mug is strong, and, it, and it's used every day, and it has a, a great function. My problem for years was I tried to be a china cup. And once I accepted who I was, I could get on with this program and enjoy the life that I have today. As I tell you, my four children and their families, I know, respect, and love me today, and, and I'm forever grateful. They all live around me. 
My youngest daughter, she has, is, has married um, interracially, and that has broadened our love in our family. We, we have such, such love, and he's such a wonderful man, and they have a three-year-old little girl named Kayla, and Kayla has her grandmother's spirit, which <laughs> both the mother and father go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla would walk in this room right now and put her hands on the hip and she'd think you were having a party for her. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I hear them saying, she's just like mom. <laughs> I am so grateful. I have so much to be grateful for. And, and Robert told you I retired. But I didn't retire from Al-Anon. I, I, I do miss my friends at the World Service office, but I'm still connected to the international that will be taking place in Salt Lake in 98. I started going to computer school. I'm going, they wanted me to start a new career, or I wanted to start a new career. I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to getting well so that uh, Petal can come to the surface again and have some more fun and spread some more joy. I'm so grateful to Al-Anon because they walked me through it. They helped me maintain and restore my sanity. I knew that uh, the loving God that I had, he would stick by me because I made a decision many years ago to give him my life. Now, even though there's times I react to the life that I have, I still trust in my Lord. So I told you my inventory came back down of my fear of abandonment and I have faced it and I'm here to tell you there is life after divorce. I no longer believe two people become one because if one leaves you got half a person. I believe two people are two people that can come together and have a good relationship and I'm all for that. I have worked on my shortcomings and defects of character and I continue to make lists when they're there. And I can readily admit I'm wrong because I'm not afraid of that anymore. I'm at peace with myself and with my God and with my life. And in, I want to thank you all once again for having me, and I want to close in the usual manner. My God uses the breezes throughout the day to let me know he's near. He's used the sun to touch the very center of my soul, and in the warmth there's been healing, and in that healing there's laughter and there's joy. Oh, yes, and my God's laughing with me because he's so, so pleased. You see, a few 24 hours ago, he placed me in the safe arms of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and Alateen. He told you to share your experiences with me so I could learn and deal with mine. He told you to love me when I couldn't love myself. You see, my God is happy, and he's pleased, and he wants to thank each and every one of you, as I do, for a job well done. Thank you. <laughs>